Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Deep Dive with Kion Wolf. Our regular announcer Greg is still in the hospital after last week's episode, How to Iron a Shirt While Somebody is Wearing It. Just looking on that one, you can see where a lot of things went wrong, but I don't believe in dwelling on the you know, whatever. It would be nice, by the way, if some of you sent Greg a card in the hospital. I know I sure am planning to. So today the topic is how to use plastic wrap. I see a lot of people try to tear off some wrap and then cover an onion or a bowl and get in this awful mess. So we're going to start by holding the box like this and then yanking down hard on the wrap. Here we go. Ow! I really cut my finger pretty bad on the serrated edge Ah, so that's a life lesson. Uh, we're going to save this for episode eight, but let's switch over and do how to put on a Band-Aid if it's just you and one of your fingers is cut. Whew, I'm already getting a little lightheaded, so here are two Band-Aids. No, it's just one. It it looked like two for a second. Remember when they used to have that little red thread that you would pull? They got rid of that. I don't know when. So let's just try to get it open without getting... Too much blood. Uh, I might have to hold on to the table here for a second. Today on the scramble, and David Reese on how to do uh, simple things. Also, our Sunday news, something about football, uh, some other topics. And now it's so cool the way you turn the whole room into a merry-go-round. It's spinning and spinning. Colin Mack. I'm okay. I think she is okay. I think she's going to be fine. Uh, she just wasn't really prepared to do that. So in just a second, you're going to meet David Reese, who does do a show. I don't know if he's got a How to Put on a Band-Aid episode in the can or in the works or something like that. Although it would be, it's exactly the kind of thing that does happen on Going Deep with David Reese. Before I bring David Reese on, and it will be his second appearance with us, we're very excited uh, I just need a couple of minutes of your time. I feel like I need to mention this because it's it's weighing on my soul and also because if I don't, Mike Pesca will do it on the gist and I'll feel like, well, I, could, I didn't have to get scooped by Mike Pesca. So in the New York Times today, this fascinating article about the new campaign for Depend. And first of all, one of the things I learned from this article is that everybody calls uh, that particular kind of anti-incontinence undergarment Depends, right? Uh, there depends. Except the brand name is Depend. If you're wearing one, you're wearing a Depend. Um, see, right away. A- anyway, uh, one of the big advertising firms has kind of tackled this. They had a, uh, they did a pitch to the client. Uh, they brought him into this fancy conference room, uh, and on cue, the team members from this uh, fancy schmancy madman type ad agency all dropped their pants to reveal they were wearing Depend undergarments, uh, and the campaign they pitched which is being introduced uh, uh, today as under-awareness. No, excuse me, underwearness. Underwearness. Which <laughs> I love it when the New York Times says this. The New York Times helpfully points out as a portmanteau 
of underwear and awareness. I think probably most of us could have figured out what was going on there with underwearness, but whatever. Um, it is uh, the goal of the campaign is to reduce the stigma of the products by showing bladder incontinence is common and affects younger people. And it's they've got a commercial uh, with an above the chest shot of an actor walking down a city street wearing a denim jacket before a wider shot reveals that below the waist he is wearing only depend briefs. Uh, more and more pedestrians fall in behind them, all dressed professionally or casually above the waist, but wearing only a depend undergarment below. The ever-growing procession turns the heads of people. It's like the music man. Uh, except what would that musical, what would that be called if it were about uh, uh, depend undergarments instead of trombones? I'll let you decide. I guess it would be called urine town, except that's already taken. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. Okay, I'm going to just stop and just say this. I actually thought this was really great, and probably it's because as I approach 60, which I'm doing this year, I'm arriving at 60 this year, I'm keenly aware that our society, you know, is less and less the kind of society that venerates the elderly and more and more the kind of society that puts the elderly on ice flows so that they don't slow the rest of the Inuit pack down. <laughs> so, you know, anything like this which kind of affirms you know, this, the parts of life that have to do with the parts of you growing old, I think is kind of a good thing. I, I, there's something kind of healthy about this. And so I salute you, Oglevy, uh, the advertising agency, and I salute you, Depend. Uh, and uh, I think that's good. I mean, I just I feel happy about it, and, and I wanted to share that. I mean, I don't feel like Pharrell Williams happy about it, but I feel kind of happy about it. I look forward to the commercial and not in a mocking uh, way at all. All right. Enough of me. If Seinfeld were a documentary, a nonfiction movie directed by Wes Anderson, it would be something like Going Deep with David Reese. But Seinfeld was really about probing social and linguistic rules that lie hidden from sight. GW, no, I did it wrong. GDWDR, which is, of course, what we call Going Deep with David Reese for short. GDWDR uh, probes our interactions with the physical world, basic quotidian acts that we think we do well enough, but that, upon further review, occasion an unspoken struggle in us. Deep, protracted contemplation of the little thing may lead to many big things. This is not a new idea, but David Reese is having as much fun with it as anybody I've seen since Nicholson Baker, who in 1988 wrote The Mezzanine, a novel whose entire plot consists of its uh, narrator breaking a shoelace and going to CVS on his lunch hour to purchase a new one. That's what the entire book is about. But it's also sort of about all those other things that David Reese is so interested in. He was last with us to talk about sharpening pencils. But now we're going to go bigger than that. We're going to pull back for the big shot and look at all the kinds of things like sharpening a pencil that might occasion an entire TV show. So uh, joining us now uh, is a cartoonist, a creator of the comic strips Get Your War On, the author of How to Sharpen Pencils, and the host of Going Deep with David Reese, which premiered on the National Geographic Channel on July 14th. Uh, well, obviously, it would be David Reese. I already said his name enough. Welcome back to our show. Hello, this is David Reese. How are you? Good. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. So, I just want everyone to be sure uh, that they know the name of the person that you're interviewing. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, once you do the segment about how to do an interview, uh, one of the things you'll point out is it's very good to say the name of the person you're interviewing for the you know benefit of people who are listening. Exactly. Interviewing skill 101. So you're, you get very excited. I was watching the episode about how to make ice, or specifically, as you put it, how to make big boy ice cubes. 
Um, and you get really excited about this, right? I mean, one of the things that's fun about this show is that you seem genuinely and at times almost uncontrollably excited to be <laughs> learning what you're learning. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, one of the thrills of making the show was just, I think because we were on National Geographic, we got access to these amazing labs and, and scientists who were doing incredible stuff, like things that I had never thought about. So from when we were making How to Make an Ice Cube, we went to the National Ice Core Lab in Colorado, which is a government-funded research facility where they just have miles and miles of ancient ice that's been harvested from Antarctica and Greenland, and they, they store the ice and then melt the ice and capture the gases to um, analyze you know, uh, gases in the atmosphere to track climate change and all sorts of things, which, of course, I had no interest in. I was there because their ice is very clear. Right. Um, but to be able to hold a piece of ice that was 100,000 years old was truly amazing. And also it was minus 40 degrees in the freezer and there were fans blowing colder everywhere. So I think I was also kind of losing my mind, which might have explained some of my giddiness. Right. Well, there's uh, a phrase that came up. You may not even remember it because you were so cold stupid. But the, yeah, phrase, cold stupid, the exactly. phrase is cold stupid. Yeah. Which is an actual phenomenon. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was living it. But the, you know, just to sort of go back, I mean, every uh, every problem has an origin somewhere. And one of the things that you start out with in that segment, which is something, and this is a nice example of the kind of undocumented problem, the thing that nobody thinks about, which is that the ice we live with day in and day out kind of sucks. You know, I mean, ice that you get from your refrigerator is just not really very good ice, is it? The ice that my freezer makes is the classic you know, uh, it kind of looks, it's slug-shaped, it's cloudy, and, and it looks cloudy and milky, which is, of course, because of the way that ice freezes. It's freezing from all sides simultaneously. All the air bubbles are being pushed into the center, uh, which not only looks kind of unappetizing if you want to put it in a drink, but also means that the ice actually will melt relatively quickly because of all the imperfections within within it. So, yeah, the goal with that show was to kind of start with the platonic ideal of an ice cube, which is a cube that looks as clear as ice, which is kind of hard to get, which is why bars, cocktail bars, who are in the fancy cocktail market, will pay up to a dollar per ice cube so that they can have a big oversized cube that cools the drink without watering down the drink, which is to say it cools the drink without melting quickly. And it just looks a lot nicer. And it, and it also looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a, it looks like, yeah. It looks like an ice cube. It well, looks like an ice cube. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, when you start thinking about that, you start thinking about all kinds of things, including the fact that the ice maker and then the bin into which the ice maker dumps its ice in your freezer, it's all too big, right? So that these huge loads of ice go there and they sit there acquiring the smells of everything else that's in your refrigerator so that if you dig down, you know, about four inches to, to get an ice cube out, it really, it's got freezer burn and all kinds of other nastiness to it. Freezer burn, you know, un unappetizing smells, they, they melt together a lot of the times. And if you're like me and you, ha and you have a broken... Uh, ice cube dispenser, you're actually reaching into your freezer and scooping out the ice by hand like an animal. So the whole experience is very unpleasant, which is why I no longer drink any liquids in my own home. I know. I've watched films of, uh, of bears using their refrigerators, and you're right. They just put their paws right into their refrigerators and, and, and scoop stuff it's out. De it's dehumanizing.
dehumanizing. Exactly. You know, uh, people are listening and thinking, but yes, how can this be good television? How can this be great? We're going to play you a little clip of this particular episode, the one we're talking about, uh, how to make uh, ice cubes. Uh, so here's uh, David Reese uh, talking to that self-same scientist uh, whom he just mentioned. Jim gave me a VIP tour of the inner sanctum of their freezers where they store their ice cores at minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So this, Woo! this <gasps> is where we store our this ice cores. This is awesome. Yes. This is, what is this? These are all ice cores. These are ice cores from Greenland and from Antarctica going back hundreds of thousands of years. Jim and his buddies have over 10 miles of ice core samples in their lab. And some of the samples are mm, 400,000 years old, which is older than humans. That piece is 120,000 years old. And look how nice and clean that this, is. I would put that in my drink in Absolutely. a New see, York minute. See it see looks how nice so and clean clear. That is? This clear looking ice was once just regular snow. But over the eons, it was hidden under tons and tons of other snow, which means it was under incredible pressure. That pressure made the impurities tinier and tinier until the ice became beautifully clear. 120,000 years, you can make a good ice cube. Can I have this? No. <laughs> so, as Samuel Johnson said, he who is tired of London is tired of life. I would say he, he who is tired of David Reese is tired of life. If David Reese can't get you excited about your life, then you're just not going to get excited. So, David Reese, um, I want to talk about a future episode and and I want you to tell me something from the episode that you're not going to want to tell me. So in order to do that, I'm going to bargain with you, all right? Okay, I like this. I'm going to give you a song that links the episode that we just heard to the episode that I'm going to ask you about. Are you ready? Yes, but what is the bargain in here for me? Well, that if you enjoy that, if that makes you happy, then maybe you'll tell me what I want to know. All right, I'm not. I'm you're ready. not. You're not committing to anything. You can always, you know, just crawfish your way right out of this. But okay, so here's the song. Honey, put down that glass water and pour me some ice water. So that's Lyle Lovett. Link uh, first of all, rhyming ice water which we just uh, talked about, with flyswatter, which is an amazing rhyme. I mean, That's right away. not bad. You've got to say that that's an amazing rhyme. So uh, you do have an episode coming up about flyswatters, how to swat a fly. Tonight, uh, yeah, at 10 o'clock on the East Coast, how to swat a fly. Oh, man. So tonight I could just watch it. I don't even have to weasel it out of you. But I do have flies in my house right now. And they... <laughs> How many and what are their names? <laughs> well, it's hard to know. You know, I mean, I wanted to like paint little sweaters on them so I would know which one was which, which one I was looking at. But, sure. But really, if you can catch them and paint sweaters on them, you might as well kill them. Well, for that for that episode, How to Swat a Fly, we went to a, a lab in, at UCLA that studies fruit flies, and they have figured out a technique which they actually taught me whereby if you make the flies cold enough and their bodies slow down, while they're asleep, you can glue them to sticks. And then when they wake up, they are glued to the, you know, a tiny pin. And they will continue to think they are free, you know, flies flying around. And as they're flapping their wings, you can uh, manipulate the direction in which they're moving and then record the, the imagery of their brain as they're processing vertical lines, which they assume are blades of grass and tree trunks. Hmm. 
So there's no reason you're not doing that in your own home. <laughs> I feel I really feel like kind of a slacker now. I feel like I just you know my whole approach. You do have millions of dollars of scientific equipment in your home, right? Absolutely, and but my every public radio host. I feel like my whole approach, which has been trying to hit them, you know, it seems so primitive now compared to what you just described. Well, that was the big theme of the of that episode, actually, um, which kind of speaks, I guess, to the spirit of the whole show, which is that yeah, we started out with with me just being frustrated with flies because, of course, they're nuisance and they can be disease vectors and, you know, they, they symbolize untidiness and I like to keep a tidy home. Uh, and so we started out just wanting to learn the best way to kill flies. And when we went to the fly lab and actually learned about flies' brains, which, yes, first of all, flies do have brains, their brains are 100,000 times uh, smaller than ours. They have 100,000 times fewer ne- neurons but their neurons are actually much more efficient than ours. So if they scaled up, uh, flies would be, would be much more powerful than humans. And, and as I was learning all this, and as I was looking at a fly's brain under a super powerful microscope, and the, the brain actually kind of looked like a storm cloud, it kind of made me, it made, you know, and this happens all the time for people, it made it harder for me to think of them as basically just like airborne dust bunnies um, and made it feel it made it a, made me have some moral quandaries about actually killing flies. Were you able to get through this whole process without going? Help me! Help me! Well, that's what I say to myself at night when I'm wondering if anybody's watching the show. <laughs> but I never say it on camera. All right, and you never say it in the presence of a fly. I feel like it's such a cliche. You know, it's like standing next to Marcel Marceau's grave doing a mime pose, which, by the way, I've actually done. Oh my. Gosh. I know. It's bad. So um, we're talking to David Reese uh, and, and the show, which is on, as it turns out, at 10 p.m. tonight. Uh, I've been watching uh, previous episodes, which are incredibly fun and do give you kind of a sense uh, of his infectious joie de vivre. Uh, so the show is called Going Deep with David Reese. Um, so and, and part of the premise here is, I mean, obviously, this is fun and you're a funny person and, and you do have an infectious joie de vivre, uh, which is treatable. Uh, and... <laughs> You know, but there is something very often something kind of serious underlying this. I mean, if you look at the little thing and you look at it as deeply as you possibly can, you do sooner or later pass through some kind of pipeline to the big thing. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like in the end, that was very much the spirit of the show. Like, we really wanted to make a show that celebrates the everyday and, and kind of assumes nothing, takes nothing for granted, which was kind of the spirit of of How to Sharpen Pencils, my book, which is that, you know, everybody keeps pencils lying around and you don't usually think about them, but pencils represent about 500 years of engineering and innovation and material science, and pencils are incredibly efficient and elegant communication tools. And the spirit of this show is like, okay, so let's just do that for everything. Let's examine everything, you know? So the the episode at 1030 tonight after How to Swat a Fly is How to Open a Door, which, honestly, we had a hard time pitching to the network. <laughs> We're going to do a 30-minute show about opening doors. But doors are, when you really think about them, very kind of strange and profound, you know, portals, you know, thresholds between which we pass with more or less anxiety based on how confident we are that we know how to open the door or how confident we are that we know what lies on the other side of the door, not to mention revolving doors, which are just a total 
nightmare death machine as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring that up, that that uh, it's sort of a misnomer because um, the revolving door is not a door you have to open. It's a door you have to master. And in that segment, you actually work with, I forget what he was. Is he like a track coach or something? He's or? actually, coincidentally, the high school track coach in my town of Beacon, New York, hmm. which I had no idea until I showed up. Uh, to interview him, but yeah, we so he. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just said get me a track coach, and the person they got you was from your your hometown high school. Yes, well, you should know that the entire population <laughs> of New York State is only five hundred people. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that's it's an urban legend that a lot of people live in this. Oh, place. okay, continue. Yeah, we wanted a track coach because uh, I was thinking about what scares me about revolving doors, and my anxiety about revolving doors is always that I'm going to enter the door and either start pushing too slowly, and then someone's going to come in behind me and push too quickly, and I'm going to kind of fall inside the door and get mauled and break my ankle. And we realized that a big part of revolving door use is just matching the flow of the other people who are entering and exiting the door. And we thought, okay, so who would be good at that? Who is good at teaching people to, to sync up their movements and their speeds with others? And we realized, I was thinking about the Olympics and like the baton relay, right? right. The way those people pass the baton to each other is a very sophisticated acceleration a match speed and a deceleration as the baton is, is passed seamlessly between two runners. So I thought a track coach who specializes in baton relay might might have some wisdom to impart on using a revolving door correctly. He did a great job. He did. You know, one thing that would help, I was watching that segment, and, and by the way, um, you did a great job too. I mean, when you finally summoned the nerve uh, <laughs> to go in there, you you did it. It was like water off a duck's back. I mean, no, you really. I mean, it was and it was strangely satisfying because yeah. again, like what we want to do with this show is show people that, yeah, doing simple things well, um, it might not be as satisfying as performing open heart surgery and saving a child's life, but on the other hand, it still does offer real satisfaction and a, and a type of satisfaction that is very different from the satisfaction of whatever owning the newest ipad or you know going to some spectacle or something like that <laughs> although i do love going to some spectacle um, well there are some spectacles that i do enjoy going to who You're does right. not enjoy that um one thing that uh, it struck me about the revolving doors is once i watched that i thought well, of course part of the problem is a lack of standardization in a revol- in revolving doors the the sort of pie slice shaped segment into which you jump isn't always the same size and sometimes it seems like there's really room for an extra person in there like maybe you should also let the person behind you come in there with you you know and then other times it's really clear that it's just it's a unit person pie slice if they would standardize that they would take some of the guesswork out for for all of us there are multiple revolving door designs and you want to know something interesting that that uh, actually didn't make it into the episode but that gave me comfort as a new yorker is that there is a New York, in the New York state legislation, there is a speed limit to revolving doors. There is, an attra- <laughs> it varies, I think it varies state to state. I do not think it is nationally standardized. But there is a maximum revolutions per minute that a revolving door is allowed to achieve. Because some, some of them we used yeah. was actually, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say where we used it, the door we used was actually not street legal because it had no limiters on how quickly you could push it. Oh, uh, no governor, as it were. Right, exactly, which made, which made our nightmare scenario scene even more intense because we could really film the extreme uh, worst-case scenarios involving a revolving door where there was no limit as to how fast you could push it. But thrill-seekers will want to know where that door is. You know, I mean, now it's like, I, I personally, I'm not looking for any trouble, but there's a kind of person who wants to use the revolving door 
that has no right. speed government. If they send me $20 right. for a self-addressed stamped envelope, I will tell them the location of this illegal revolving door. Now, the hell to which you have consigned yourself, David Reese, is that now everybody is going to spend a lot of time suggesting, <laughs> once they sort of understand the overall concept of the show, you must be barraged now with people with all kinds of ideas, unsolicited advice. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so I'm going to give you some. Um, how to wash a car. Uh, I put this up on Facebook just to see if anybody. And then uh, the Band-Aid thing in our opening segment, I actually think putting on a Band-Aid is really hard. And it, it often the doesn't. The Band-Aid is a great example yeah. of what, what for us makes for an enticing episode. And when we went out to pitch the show, we had about 100 episode ideas. But we're always looking for more ideas. How to put on a Band-Aid is good, number one. Because for television's sake, it means we get to shoot a lot of wounds and right. a lot of blood. Exactly. And that means ratings. Number two, that was George get, Clooney's whole career right there in the early exactly. stages. Yeah. And you get to He'd talk be nobody. about the body healing process, what Band-Aid is correct for what, part, what type of wound or mm. what type of the body. You can talk about the cultural anthropology of, of back when there were no Band-Aids that, that blended into any skin other than Caucasian skin, which is actually a very interesting political issue about marketing and, and all those types of things. So, and also, crucially... The great thing about that episode idea, which I'm going to steal, is that most people, when they, when they see that episode on their DVR and TV Guide, they're going to say, there's nothing I could learn about that. Right. Which for us is, has to be the, that's the first threshold that an episode idea has to pass, which is the idea that people are going to think, this has to be a joke. There's nothing I could learn about it. That is the red blanket waved in front of the bull that is you, David Reese. Yeah, exactly. Like how to tie your shoes. Most people think they know how to tie their shoes, and it turns out 50% of Americans are tying unbalanced knots, which is why they're all double knotting. There you go. Um, well, listen, uh, when that episode runs, I'll be sitting there with my uh, cheap champagne waiting to see my name scroll by at the end, and it won't, but I'll still understand. I'll know that I was the guy who suggested I tell you, you will be the guest who shows up with a huge, gaping, bloody wound, and we will spend the next 30 minutes trying to dress it properly. All right, yes, I'll get injured in the how to mow a lawn segment with by the lawnmower, and then you can just start shooting the Band-Aid segment right from there. Back to back. All right, like David that. Reese, this is so so much fun to talk to you, as yeah, always. Yeah, I like talking to you, Colin. I appreciate it. All right, going deep with David Reese. Uh, check it out. It's on the National Geographic channel. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and talk about a different kind of TV show, the kind that runs on Sunday mornings. A lot of people stand around, sit around, talking about the news. Does this need to happen anymore at all? All right. Well, National Sunday Morning News shows have been around a long time, these news shows. Um, I believe Meet the Press started in 1947. One of its first hosts, a man named Bill Monroe, was the father of Lee Monroe, who's somebody very important now at Hartford Hospital. That's just a little local uh, piece of trivia for you. Uh, but the reason we're here, the reason we're here to talk about them is that, you know, they they are going through – um, how shall we put it? Well, they're going through troubles. They're going through throes. The question is, are they going through death throes? Uh, joining us now is one of my favorite media critics, Dylan Byers from Politico. Um, and in fact, he did write, he did use the word death, or at least the headline, headline writer from Politico used the word death, the death of Sunday shows. Although, as Mark Twain said, that the, that could be prematurely reported. Um, but uh, the, the occasion for this is that uh, Meet the Press is now third out of three uh, among the networks in these races. 
ratings. Uh, David Gregory is its host. There's this kind of um, narrative that says he never really has found his footing as the host. Uh, are they going to replace him with somebody? And uh, so Dylan has taken this opportunity to say, well, you could also replace him or meet the press with something that wasn't meet the press. Um, so let's uh, pick up the story there. Dylan Byers. So uh, one of the points that you make uh, early on is that these shows are are not only not watched by average Americans as much as they used to be, they're not even watched by the people that they're about as much as they used to be. Right. And I think that's for two reasons. I mean, I think well, the first reason is just that you don't you don't need to watch the Sunday shows. I mean, these used to be the places where the agenda for the week was set. If you uh, were a politician, if you, you know, a lawmaker, if you were a policymaker, if you were anyone and you wanted to sort of like drive the agenda of the week, uh, you would go on the Sunday shows, you would have that conversation. Uh, certainly some of the big names in Washington would be invited on the shows to answer questions about what they were doing on the Hill, in the White House, uh, what have you. Uh, and now, just because news is moving so fast, because you can make, uh, uh, you can advance an argument or make a headline in a press release, in a tweet, you can do it on a cable news show on Tuesday afternoon, uh, the, the, the sort of sacred space of Sunday morning is no longer so sacred and it's no longer so necessary. And then I think uh, because of that, and, and it's the second reason that, that people don't really want to watch is that what the Sunday shows have turned into is this sort of uh, forum where people just sort of, the, the same familiar faces like John McCain, you know, who's been on, you know, it, it seems like a million times, goes on and just sort of pushes uh, very stale uh, talking points. And nobody really needs or wants to watch that. You know, another thing that they've done is they've tried to sort of speed up the pace of them. And they have more segments in them. There's this one of the, I think, flawed uh, sort of vectors of wisdom within the world of the media is, well, if the Internet is everything, if we're living in this climate that's dominated by digital life, then everything should be as fast as the Internet and everything should be in in very small bites because that's how people uh, absorb information now. So rather than having longer segments, it seems as though there's there's a whole bunch of little things going on in the shows. And I'm wondering whether they would be better off sticking to the thing that they are that does represent a divergence from the way everything else is. Right. And and I certainly I would make that argument. and I think many people would, which is if you if you just start doing these little packages and these quick segments and you move from topic to topic to topic and issue to issue to issue, how are you any different from what's going on on cable news on any given in any given hour? Uh, you have to distinguish yourself. And what made shows like Meet the Press so great back in their heyday is you would get a very uh, you get a very good interview with some real questions asked and some real back and forth. And it would happen over sometimes the entire show, or at least 30 minutes or 40 minutes, and you'd go to commercial break and you'd come back and you'd have more segments. And, you know, when you talk to somebody for that long, you inevitably make news because somebody can only sort of, like, withstand the pressure of an interrogation for so long. And now what you have are these sort of, like, you know, pro forma interviews where where no one really asks tough questions and and no one really feels the need to answer tough questions but can sort of spin into talking points. And and it just feels like like everything else we have. I do think that that Sunday mornings are a unique space. Uh, I think they're a time when people sort of want to, like, sit down and engage in something, not just get, you know, like the latest headlines like they do throughout the rest of the week. And and so, yeah, I think there's a very fair argument for, for trying to preserve what Meet the Press was rather than trying to make it more similar to what we have everywhere else. 
But, you know, one of the things you just said, I think, is gets to the heart of the problem, too, which is um, it, it almost never feels like an interrogation. And I don't think it's felt like an interrogation for a really long time. In fact, it's interesting to watch American political figures go over to Europe every once in a while. There was an Engl- either English or Irish journalist who was in- interrogating uh, President George W. Bush at one point during his presidency. And he was having to ask questions and move his feet so much faster than than he was back in the United States. And you realize that that kind of slightly adversarial uh, confrontational, well, you just said this, well, what about that? Uh, that style of interview, particularly on a show that's all about a get, right? A lot, uh, uh, if you're competing with two other networks at minimum and maybe more networks than that, and you need to get this guest, you're gonna be, it's going to be harder for you to get the guest uh, if he has a, cho- a choice of going someplace else, if your reputation is one of confrontation, is one of follow-up questions that may make the guest uncomfortable, you know, you'd rather right. you'd rather go up against somebody softer than somebody harder. Right, and and uh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think the American news media, especially on television, has just been extraordinarily uh, complacent. You have a few figures who do sort of pride themselves on asking tough questions, and most people are sort of. Uh, operating at the margins, right? But the people who, the, the sort of big names, David Gregory, Bob Schieffer, George Stephanopoulos, uh, certainly the nightly news people like Brian Williams, Diane Sarah, those people really aren't asking really tough questions. And, and this issue about uh, needing to get the big name, and the big name will always have an option of going somewhere else. If you are, say, Hillary Clinton, and, you know, you really like, uh, you feel really comfortable with an anchor at ABC News and you don't feel so comfortable with an anchor at CBS News, then you just don't have to go to CBS News. Or you can prioritize ABC News over CBS News. Or you can do any number of things. So it's really uh, the, 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 it's the interviewees who are operating from the position of power. And I think that there's a sensibility in Europe, uh, uh, certainly in the U.K., where uh, it's, the media believes that it's in the position of power and that it's, it's fulfilling the role of the fourth estate, and it doesn't feel the need to sort of like kowtow to, to the guests just to get them to come on the air. I mean, oddly enough, because I wouldn't have necessarily expected it of her, but, you know, Terry Gross is starting to emerge as one of these people who will hound Hillary Clinton or some other interviewee, uh, you know, as long as it takes to get a solid answer. Uh, and, right. and you kind of, I mean, maybe part of that also is she's got a little bit more time. If everything has to be crammed into, you know, a 12-minute or 10-minute or 8-minute segment, then you can't just keep asking the same question over and over again. Right, and Terry Gross did in, on that NPR interview. She did have sort of the luxury of time, but she also, you know, she, she uh, there's an art to interviewing, and you have to be, you have to think about how you're going to go into an interview like that. And I think there are a lot of people who want to get the get, and they want to ask that person, you know, to comment on everything under the sun, on every current event that's happened. Uh, whereas what Terry Gross did is she just harnessed in on one issue, and she just pressed on that issue over and over. And over again, and and it you know that that was something that made waves. But again, these aren't these aren't the sort of you know nationally recognized faces of of the broadcast networks and cable news. These are people like, you know like Terry Gross, who who did a wonderful job, but but 
there were probably only so many Americans who were even aware that that interview took place. Absolutely. But the other thing she, other advantage she has is she's not part of this wildly incestuous Washington network, right? I mean, one of the we don't even have to speculate about what really goes on behind the scenes with these shows. We got a pretty good dose of it during the Scooter Libby trial, where you know it became clear because of actual memos that were obtained and emails that were obtained that, for example, the Scooter Libby, the Dick Cheney uh, people felt that they they wrote CT next to uh, Tim Russert and Meet the Press, which stood for Control the Message. On that show, they felt that they could control the message, so that's where they were going to go. Uh, Mary Madeline right. had emails about the fact that uh, that Chris Matthews was very competitive with, with Russert, so you could sort of play those two guys off of each other. You've got a network where, you've got an incestuous network where Luke Russert wound up co-hosting a show with James Carville, uh, some kind of sports show. James Carville's married to Mary Madeline. Mary Madeline who was putting Dick Cheney on Meet the Press. I mean, you're not going to get real clear, hard, adversarial journalistic interviews in such an incredible sort of mutual hand-washing environment. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And I, I don't think the American public needs any sort of uh, any more evidence about just how incestuous Washington's political and media class is. Uh, you know, you, cert- you, you certainly see it uh, all the time. It's there in the sort of relationships that people have in the conflicts of interest. We sort of put it on show. We, we roll it out for everybody once a year with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Uh, I, I think, but at, at the same time, what you have to do is you have to find a way to be... Uh, I wonder what the sort of, the sort of appropriate uh, cocktail is to, to, to be adversarial and challenging and to stick to your guns well, at the same time, commanding so much respect uh, that people feel compelled to. Oop, I think we're losing. Yeah, oh, there we go. Okay, uh, Dylan Byers, you're cutting out just a tiny bit here. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. That's okay. Uh, while you're reestablishing yourself, and we're going to be saying goodbye in just a second anyway, we're running out of time, but here's Carl from Enfield with a comment. And Dylan Byers just asked a really great question, which is, how do you get that? You know, do you have maybe a host who sits all week long in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and doesn't attend Georgetown dinner parties so that he or she can be corrupted and not develop an allegiance to Georgetown dinner parties that are that is stronger than uh, his or her allegiance to the truth? and to the mission of journalism. Uh, but uh, Carl has another possibility, which is look north, look to a different country. Carl, tell us what it is that you do. Yeah, so I gave up on, uh, I gave up on U.S. media quite a, a while ago, Colin, and what I discovered is up in Canada, uh, with the CBC, they have programs called, like, As It Happens, where they've got real reporters asking tough, tough questions of Anybody, whether it's a Canadian uh, politician, sometimes U.S. politicians, it doesn't matter. They ask the hard questions. No softballs, no marshmallows. They go right after them until they get the answer, until they get the truth. It's very, very, very liberating to have that experience after all this nonsense in the States, I have to say. All right. I thought Canadians were nice. Uh, well, anyway, Dylan Byers, it's so great to talk to you. We really do uh, love your work in uh, Politico, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And we're going to talk about the NFL. And guess what? Their morals are compromised. Again.
I know these Sunday talk shows have to do anything they can to churn up interest, but Bob Schieffer shirtless was not a pretty sight. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Lily Tyson and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by George Will. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making veal a la Cokie Roberts, visit our website, WNPR.org. Tomorrow, our Midsummer Music Show featuring the Avid Brothers, Orleans, and Toad the Wet Sprocket. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, you may have followed this. Uh, the uh, NFL and the Baltimore Ravens uh, have uh, suspended Ray, Ray Rice, a running back, a Baltimore Ravens running back, uh, for two games, a two-game suspension uh, to start the 2014 season. Uh, two games is sort of like your parents grounding you for, you know, I don't know, driving your father's car without permission or something. Uh, well, he did something considerably worse than that. He knocked his then fiance, now his wife, unconscious uh, and uh the world got to see video of him dragging uh, his fiance out of an elevator. Uh, it was not a pretty picture. Um, so um, a lot of people have looked at this. Uh, the article that we enjoyed the most and uh, thought made uh, some of the most telling points was by Tomas Rios, uh, writing in Sports on Earth. Uh, so he's joining us now. He begins Jacksonville Jaguars wide receiver Justin Blackman is serving an indefinite unpaid suspension. His crime is smoking a bunch of weed, an issue that got him arrested for a third time on Wednesday. Baltimore Ravens running back Ray Rice will serve a two-game suspension to start the 2014 season. Tomas Rios, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So um, one of the things that you're looking at is that, well, let's, let's start with the NFL and then we can kind of broaden out to, to society at large. I feel like this is just a conversation we have over and over again about the NFL. Their values are really skewed. Um, is, there, is there more that we can say about this? I mean, I, I suppose if Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, w- was on with us right now, he'd say, Tomas, Colin, you know, really, some of these things that you're talking about, these drug suspensions, there's an actual code written that we have that says how long you have to be suspended for for offense X, whereas we just don't really have, we haven't really codified knocking your uh, fiancé unconscious. Uh, we're doing the best we can with this. What, what would your answer be to that? Well, I'd say that's a completely ridiculous thing to say. It would be very easy for the, I mean, you know, assaulting someone is a crime, no less than, you know, smoking marijuana is a crime in most states. And they could easily have their own policy for these sorts of situations. What I would say in return is that, you know, you have this incredibly strict drug policy that suspends people pretty much right out the gate for a first offense which is, you know, no different than society's broad tendency to disproportionately punish people for minor drug violations while at the same time turning a blind eye to issues of domestic violence, a crime that often goes unreported, is typically minimized by police investigations and usually ends with the abuser getting away with it on some level, as is the case with Ray Rice. And you see the same tendency of strict punishment in Justin Blackman's case when it comes to smoking marijuana. 
So you're saying um, not not that there's a one to one correspondence between the way the NFL handles something like this and the way society and the criminal justice system handles something like this. It's not a one one to one correspondence, but there is some kind of relationship between these two sets of double standards. I mean, absolutely. You know, standards for punishment don't kind of emerge from the ether. They are informed by the broader society. And standards for punishment in a society are all informed by the criminal justice system. It's why, in this case, the NFL, which is you know, very open in its desire to become much bigger than it already is, their stated goal is to triple their operating revenue by 2025. An incredibly bold goal that is one that they actually have a pretty good chance of meeting. And oftentimes when you look at these huge, huge financial operations – a lot of their worst decision-making is reflected by the broader society in which they take place. Obviously, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but you know the NFL's ideas about what it can get away with in terms of punishing someone for this and you know not punishing someone for that, those, those ideas are informed by something, and they're going to be informed by how society views these sorts of crimes. And the fact is, is that we live in a country that is incredibly strict in terms of its drug policy, especially as it relates to the black community, while ignoring crimes of domestic violence, especially when those crimes are committed against black women in this country. And the numbers absolutely bear that out, because black people make up only 12 percent of our population of drug users. They use drugs at about a comparable rate to the white population. However, it's black people who make up almost 60 percent of those in state prison for drug offenses. Meanwhile, violence by a current or former intimate partner is one of the leading causes of death amongst black women ages 15 to 34, which is something that most people don't know about. And it's something that the media, you know, rarely publicizes on both fronts, the issues of the prison state in this country and how it's completely wrecking our collective sense of morality. You know, just sort of back to the uh, NFL and its, its, you know, monetary goals here. Um, it's become axiomatic that one of the ways that the NFL can expand and has expanded and is expanding is by attracting a female audience, which uh, it seems to be doing with each passing season in greater numbers. And this seems to be kind of a counter narrative, right? It seems as though um, if, in fact, uh, you're going to be able to talk a woman into watching NFL football for reasons X, Y, and Z, she's much more likely to be willing to watch uh, a bunch of pot smokers uh, running around with a football than to, uh, to watch a bunch of wife beaters uh, running around with a football. Well, yeah, sure, but at the same time, we have to look at it from the sense of, is the MFO going to say that it wants women watching their product? Of course, that's a given. However, they've built their entire following on, you know, kind of glorifying this, you know, retrograde version of masculinity where they talk about their players as warriors and kind of just sewing the whole NFL mythology into a part of Americana. And they've been incredibly successful with that. And that is what they're going to keep, you know, emphasizing. All this stuff that they say about wanting women to watch their products and, you know, taking issues of domestic violence against women very seriously and all that, it's essentially PR. It's the same with their punishment system. The punishment system is all PR. The NFL is not a criminal justice organization, quite obviously. And I feel like a lot of the anger that's being directed at the NFL over their handling of the Ray Rice situation is kind of the echo of the anger that's felt over the criminal justice system failing to do anything of significance with Ray Rice. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, it's abominable that the NFL 
you know, decided that, oh, a two-game suspension is what this merits, you know, this is not as damaging to our brand as a player smoking marijuana. However, the same criminal justice system did not punish Ray Rice in any significant way. In all likelihood, he's going to end up having his record expunged as long as he goes along with a pretty simple and easy pretrial diversionary program. That is the punishment he got for knocking out his wife. Right. He was arrested. He was indicted. But as you say, uh, he's uh, he may have his record uh, cleaned up eventually. Well, another part of this, and I'm sitting just a short distance away from the headquarters of ESPN, uh, is that uh, Stephen A. Smith uh, did not uh, endear himself to a lot of people with his comments, which essentially amounted to he seemed almost to be sort of cautioning women. Although I think he actually kept using the pronoun we, which is very confusing. But let's make sure we don't do things that provoke men. Let's make sure we don't quote-unquote, have it coming, not that he used that phrase. Um, but he seemed to be trying to shift some of the burden for this on onto a woman who might unduly inflame the temper of her uh, NFL running back husband. Um, obviously, you know, we just did a segment about how, how Sunday morning talk shows have trouble differentiating themselves from the beltway culture of Washington politicians. ESPN has even more trouble differentiating itself from the athletes who ultimately make a lot of money for ESPN. Uh, absolutely, and this is not a new thing with Stephen A. Smith. Uh, Deadspin, for example, went back into the archives and found from a couple of years ago Stephen A. Smith on ESPN in a case of athlete domestic violence, essentially saying the exact same things and doubting a victim's account of domestic violence and placing the blame on the victim and refusing to acknowledge that domestic violence is always a crime where the blame rests entirely on the abuser. And it's kind of you know, sickly fascinating to see the way that ESPN ends up at this point, because when they initially broke the news of the suspension, they referred to what happened between Ray Rice and Janae Rice as being a altercation and an incident and all these other weasel words that are designed to kind of ignore the enormity of the crime that he committed. And then you have, then they bring on Adam Schefter, who openly floats the question of whether or not Roger Goodell was lenient enough in his suspension of rice. Was the suspension too severe, a two-game suspension for knocking out your wife? Mm. And then all that just builds up, and it's kind of creating this culture that fits in perfectly with ESPN's Embrace Debate shtick, where they basically flatten out reality and normalize terrible opinions as being worthy of debate. And all that culminates in their foremost sports screamer, Stephen A. Smith, going on national television and saying things that are quite clearly meant to touch on the idea that domestic violence is a crime where both the victim and the abuser carry blame. Thomas, yes. They've created a culture that is essentially one that says, no matter how stupid or worthless your idea may be, it is one that is worth debating. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do because then it, impo- it becomes impossible to meaningfully criticize anything at all. Thomas Rios, we're going to have to go. It's uh, Thomas Rios, race for Sports on Earth. we got to jump out right here. And we're back to deep dive with Kion Wolf. This week we're going to climb a tree. You start by finding a foothold. Ow! You find a place to put your hands. Ow! Consider climbing an oak or maple tree, not a... Ow! Cactus.